I spoke to the guys about doing some forecasts and, and that was before professionalism in, in sailing. And uh, they said, well, what would it cost? And I said, well, you know, it probably cost three or $4,000 by the time I got to cover my expenses. And I can remember, they said, but we could get a new Genoa for that. No one was forecasting for yachting in a full-time basis. I was the first one in the world to take on yachting full-time. So you couldn't go back at half past seven and say, well, actually, I think now at three o'clock, it's going to be another three knots or two knots more because it was too late. You'd made the call. So six hours, I'd be sweating every day watching to see uh, see how it was going. You know, was I on track? So I must have been on track most of the time because we won. Look, there's. I always say there's more weather on the on the internet than there is pornography. So there's a lot of it. There are so many models of, that you can use. and In fact, there's so many models that you can always pick one in hindsight that was correct. But you've got to know beforehand which one was going to be right. Roger Clouds Badham is one of the world's preeminent meteorologists and was also the first person to forecast for yachties and boaties on a full-time basis. His 50-year involvement in the sport has seen him work on 10 America's Cups, 9 Olympic Games, more than 40 Sydney to Hobart races and countless world championships and big events. He's been a critical member of Team New Zealand for 20 years helping them firstly win the Cup in Bermuda in 2017 and then retain it earlier this year in Auckland. And he's also worked with New Zealand's top Olympic campaigners for the last five games. Clouds has described weather forecasting as like short-term futures trading, either selling or buying left or right. But his accuracy is something he's renowned for, and it earned him a job working with the Ferrari Formula One team. Roger talks about his career in this episode of Broadreach Radio, how he got into the industry, what forecasting was like in the early days before computer modelling, and then the arms race as teams tried to get the edge, what impact he's had on various campaigns, and the pressure he can sometimes come under to get it right. He also touches on the world of Formula One and how it differs to high-level sailing. Clouds is highly respected in the sailing world and has a wealth of knowledge and experience, which comes across in this podcast. So pop the headphones or earbuds in and settle in. I hope you enjoy. Well, joining me on the show now is Roger Clouds Bannon. Welcome. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's uh, great for you to make some time for us today uh, because obviously a lot of people love to talk about the weather. So it's a topic that many people think they're experts in, actually, and, and something many do for the old idle chit-chat. Are you a bit like a chef who doesn't like cooking at home and would prefer not to talk about the weather at parties or around the weather, the water cooler? Uh, it's become a bit that way over the last 40 or 50 years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So do you ever get ever get sick of looking at weather charts? Um, oh, no, not really. No, no. I mean, in these days, you you look at the charts. You don't really draw them. In the early days, um, you'd slave over large charts. You know, these are meter by a meter, and you'd do all the plotting, and you'd actually draw your own weather charts. But these days, they're all drawn by computer and whatever. So. It's taken out. Uh, high resolution charts I still draw by hand, but otherwise I just look at them. And no, I don't get sick of looking at them. There's always something to see that's interesting. Always. I guess it's always changing, isn't it? It's uh, such a dynamic part of, of life. So you've been a, a meteorologist for, for nearly 50 years and, and for most of that time involved in sailing. Um, what sort of work are you involved in at the moment? Well, I also do the F1. I work for a uh, a car company called Ferrari. Um, I do their weather for the F1, which was all last night and the night before and the night before, so I didn't get any sleep. Um, and uh, I'm still doing the the in the last year and a half. There hasn't been as much yachting as there was. <laughs> Don't know if anyone's noticed um, due to uh, COVID, but. Um, there's still there, there's there's yachting ramping up. There, there's um, a TP fifty two Super Series finished yesterday in uh, or Saturday in uh, in the Mediterranean. I do one of the boats there that won sled. Um, the uh, the Blue Water Series is getting going here now in in Australia, which is the uh, the lead up to the Hobart race. So there's local races most just about every weekend now. Passage races and local races. Um, still doing some yachting New Zealand stuff. Um, there's a bunch of the guys in Barcelona. It's winter time; they should leave. Um, so yeah, there's and there's still some races in uh, in Europe and whatever. So yeah, do all that. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of keen to untangle a, a bit of that, and I'm certainly interested in talking to you about the Formula One stuff just a little bit later on, but. Um, if to sort of kick things off, you know, you're involved this year with a couple of pretty big events, you know, namely the, the Tokyo Olympics and, and America's Cup. So if we can start with the Olympics, you know, what was your role with the New Zealand team and what sort of information would you pass on to the sailors and coaches? Well, you, it's hard. I, I always say that the meteorologists can't win them, win a medal for them, uh, for the sailors. Um it's it's half education and half psychologically holding their hand to some extent. Basically, they should get on the boat and go out and sail the course um, already um, with a good knowledge of the airstream that they're going to sail in. So there should be no surprises during the course of the afternoon's racing. Um, and they should sail in the basically in the conditions that were forecast, which means getting the wind speed and the direction right and what's going to happen. And are there any abrupt changes likely to happen or not? And uh, so that they're, yeah, they're comfortable in what they're sailing in so that they can then devote as much time thinking about their, their um, tactics as they think about their strategy tactics being boat on boat and strategy being how they're sailing the environment. 
So how specific can you get? Or do you need to keep it pretty general at times because weather's so dy dynamic and behaves unpredictably at times? Well, it's a function of, of the sort of sailing that you're doing and how much you've done on the, uh, how much preparation that I've done in the, uh, in, in the place. Um, so there are times where you can be very specific. I mean, the last, the Olympics were in uh, Endoshima in Japan, fairly tricky place in the fact that the sea breeze was weak and there's possibly typhoon uh, influence and there's a lot of rain influence. Um, rain can play havoc with the breeze and lift it off the water or shift it around. So there's 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 a fair bit um, of variability there, but at the same time you should um, in 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 the games just finished. Uh, it it was um, the breeze was fairly benign just about all the time for racing. It was mostly between six and probably twelve at the max knots. Uh, so a fairly fairly narrow range, and it was mostly mostly onshore, um, and so it, it. But I mean the 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 Olympics is 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 a is a peculiar event in the fact that you the sailor leaves the dock and really you don't really have a lot of interaction then with the with the sailors. Not like I've done nine Olympics. Um, I did four for Australia and I've done five for New Zealand now. And over that time, it's uh, there's probably more uh, separation between the coach and the uh, and the sailor. You, you, you know, you can't be talking to the sailor between events or anything, between races or anything like that. It's not like you can lean over to the to the guy between the race and say, hey, look, um, you know, there's a bit of pressure coming here on the left in the next 20 minutes. That's the sort of thing you can do in the cup, but not in um, not in the Olympics. They're, they're, so it's it's much more a you know um, a sailor event, which it, which it should be. Um, but as I say, it's 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 preparation. I do a lot of work with the um, with yachting New Zealand and the uh, and the Olympic sailors, not just for the Olympics, but in their lead up for the four years prior. And in fact, some of the sailors have been putting up with me now for about 12 years or more. And therefore, they know the sort of forecast that I'm going to give them. They know and, and they've been to all sorts of venues where I've provided the forecast and they know, you know, from my language and what I've written and whatever, whether whether they've got, uh, whether I have confidence in, in what I'm saying and, and they can, you know, take that onto the water. So it's a yeah, it's a uh, it's a relationship that you develop with the with the sailor, and and they get out of it as much as they want, and um, you know you try your hardest, yeah. Do you feel a sense of satisfaction when a campaign or or a team that you're involved with does well? Oh, everyone likes winning, um, but uh, yeah, I mean after the. Number of years I've been in the uh, in the event. I mean, you know, there, there's there's me getting. I'd rather get the forecast wrong and they won than I get the forecast right and they lose. But um, it's nice to get the forecast correct. And but that's as I say, the 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 forecast is is such a, a well, it can be a a bigger amount or proportion of of the event, but mostly, you know, that this uh, sailing is a very complex sport. 
because you're, you're sailing boat on boat and you're sailing the environment. And the environment is the waves, the wind and the current. So there's a hell of a lot that the sailor has to, uh, and he has to be able to master the uh, the boat that he's sailing in and, and in the different conditions and make the boat go not just fast, but faster than the other guy, and then have the tactics and strategy to uh, to pull it off. And that's that's a very complex sport. So so my input is is quite small in that side. And there are other events, and the America's Cup is one particularly going back a few series, um, where my input is very big and I can lose a race or win them a race very easily. But in the Olympics, that's not the case. It's more a you know, a good all-rounded knowledge that the sailor is going to take into each race. So I can pick your, your accent and you're talking to us from Australia. So how did you become to be involved with the New Zealand Olympic team, having previously worked with Australia? Um, well, I, sailing's a small community anyway. Everyone knows everyone else. But I joined Team New Zealand as well after uh, at 2000, so I've been with them for 20-odd years. Um, and the guys that I've known, I mean, I, there's just a, a lot of cross-personal um, relationships, uh, particularly people like Grant Beck and Tom Snackenberg and, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the people, Ian Stewart recently, um, uh, these people are are in different teams and that I've been involved in going back into the certainly back into the 90s and often back into the 80s so we talk a long way back um, and I got a bit fed up with working with the Australians and uh, when I joined Team New Zealand I uh, I also joined uh, with Yachting New Zealand. Oh we're glad you did. So, you know, how has your role, I guess, changed over time and, and is weather forecasting more exact now than it, it ever has been? Oh, it's more exact every uh, every couple of years. The uh, When I started forecasting, there were no computer models. Um, you did everything by hand and you forecast. You were lucky to get the next day with any sort of accuracy. Um, but saying that, the forecast for a sailing event that is a, an area of just a few square kilometres out in a, in a little, little part of the bay or the ocean, that hasn't actually changed a great deal because there's, while the really high-resolution computer models now are, are, are quite good, um, when you get to that level of accuracy when you're trying to forecast what the wind's going to do over the next five and ten minutes um there you have to go to a statistical understanding of the breeze and the nature of the gustiness and and complexity of the breeze as it as it sits on the water surface as opposed to forecasting even six hours ahead but certainly 12 hours ahead and a day ahead and a week ahead that's where the accuracy has improved dramatically and the uh, the sailing event will be the last bastion of uh, of computer forecasting, which I have the uh, ban on the boat. Do you think it's helped you in your role to have that knowledge from, you know, the the early days when you used to draw out all the models to be able to use the experience from all of that plus what you've learned from computers? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Um, 
plus uh, I spent a long time at university, well, a very long time, and I did a lot of research work. And the sort of research work I did was understanding the profile of the wind in the lowest few hundred metres of the atmosphere and understanding uh, it's it's not the sort of um, pathway that a normal meteorologist would um, would follow. Um, they'd come in just having a physics or maths degree and just get into large-scale meteorology, whereas I came in from the meso and micro side and research side, understanding exactly the nature of the wind profile uh, in a very small area. That's exactly what sailing is all about. Well, it's probably a good time now then just to look a little bit more at your background and, and how you got involved. So, you know, how did it all start for you? Um, at university, really, I uh, <clears throat> I was probably better at chemistry. I, I had intended to do medicine, you know, because I wanted to do, I wanted to get into research of um, cellular pharmacology and biology and physiology. I failed French and I couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't do medicine. And um, I, uh, I then went and did uh, a science degree and uh, I switched out of chemistry and switched into mathematics and physics. And then a mate of mine was doing some meteorology and he said, and that I always sort of had an interest in that. I sailed when I was young, um, but I was an average sailor. And um, yeah, I got into that and then I, I just kept on. I did a lot of research work in meteorology and then uh, got into the uh, into forecasting through when I was a consultant. It, um, after I'd, uh, this mate of mine, we, we went into business and we tried to do climatic consulting, which in the early 1970s was about 30 or 40 years ahead of our time. But a lot of people wanted forecasts. We said, oh, no, we don't do forecasts. But um, <clears throat> push comes to shove, we said, well, maybe we'll do some forecasting. One of the companies we were forecasting for was a television station. We were doing, um, I was, I was, we were doing work on air, on radio, and, and we did some television. The, uh, the boss of the television station came down to see me one day and he said, I want you to go down to the boat park on Saturday and look after a guy. I've just signed him up to, uh, for some sponsorship. And that was Ian Murray with Colour 7, an 18-footer and very talented sailor. And uh, he went on and won six world championships in the 18-footers and I was there with him all the way. And that brought me back into sailing. That was in the uh, mid-70s, late 70s. It's funny how things work out, isn't it? You know, what if you'd not been sent down that day where would you have been taken do you think you're still well uh, yeah uh, you say that but i'd already actually i'd already written to uh the guy who i knew in the uh, bond syndicate for the america's cup and i said uh because i talked to uh um and i knew mike fletcher and um frank bethwaite and those guys with the olympics and i i anyway i uh i approached them and they I remember with the I think it was either the 79, 78 79 America's Cup or maybe the 81 and uh, I spoke to the guys about doing some forecasts and, and that was before professionalism in, in sailing and uh, they said you know going across to Newport Rhode Island and you know for a couple of months with the team and doing the work I was married then with a couple of uh, three kids 
and um, they said, um, well, the, the thing came back, well, what would it cost? And I said, well, you know, it probably cost, you know, three or $4,000 by the time I got to cover my expenses for that time. And I can remember, they said, but we could get a new Genoa for that. Um, no, no, we'll, we'll just do it ourselves. And uh, as it was in the cup that Bondi won in 83, I actually helped out one of the other teams. But um, when it came to the actual cup, Dennis Connor actually had a local guy doing the forecast who I know well, and he's still in, in yachting and meteorology. And uh, so they then got themselves a, uh, a local guy as well. And um, when they won the cup in 83, the first, well, not the first thing they did when they got back, but then maybe the second or third thing they did was um, call me and say, um, actually, we wouldn't mind if you came over and <laughs> worked for us. <laughs> yeah. So other than these local guys, were there many actually specifically working and forecasting for, for yachting teams? No one was forecasting for yachting in a full-time basis. I was the first one in the world to take on yachting full-time as a profession, uh, as a yachting meteorology. And that was, uh, I went full-time. I, up until then, I'd been working with my partner and we'd been doing all sorts of stuff and I'd take as much time as I could to go off and do the yachting. But I went full-time into yachting and doing nothing but yachting meteorology and that would have been in 84, I think. And that was from there on. That's all I've done. Yep. And the nickname Cloud seems appropriate, but is there a, a story for where the, the origin of that comes from? Oh, only uh, one of the guys in the team, when one of the teams said, um, that guy, he's, uh, he's always looking at the clouds. Um, and I'd be saying to him, look, you know, use your eyes, have a look, you know, look at that, you know, don't just... Uh, don't just look at the water. You've got to look at, you know, the weather is three-dimensional, but most sailors still think that it's two-dimensional. They think of it just coming straight onto them, but it doesn't. It's three-dimensional. They don't understand that. So you mentioned you worked um, for a time on the 83 America's Cup when um, Australia 2 um, beat Dennis Connor's Stars and Stripe and in and, and that seventh and final race is they famously found a, a wind shift that, that got them past Dennis Connor to claim the cup. What were your memories of that day? Yeah, well, I wasn't working for, for Bondia there. He, he only came back to me after they won it. But um, I my recollection of that day is that Dennis lost the America's Cup uh, Equally as Australia 2-1, um, because they jibed, uh, Australia 2 jibed. They were slightly behind. They jibed in the downwind, which was they didn't finish downwind then. They used to finish upwind. So in the last downwind leg, Australia 2 jibed away, and Dennis didn't jibe to cover them. He, I've worked with Dennis subsequently in some different campaigns, He's, he was a remarkable guy, extremely talented sailor, but also very um, good at estimating statistics and, and weighing up the odds of something. He, he would have been a bookie for sure. Um, and he, had, and I wasn't on the boat, so I don't know, but he didn't jibe to cover, which he should have in a, in a tight race like that. But he obviously thought that, you know, statistically or the odds were that he could go on a bit further, jibe later 
and come back and still be in front of the bottom mark. But in fact, he wasn't. Um, so tactically, that was dumb. Strategically, he made the choice. You continued to be involved in the America's Cup throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, what was that era like? And, and specifically, I guess, around forecasting and the value that teams put in it at that stage? Well, it just got more and more. I mean, as, as the yachting became slowly more professional by the, by the very late 80s and particularly during the 90s, um, you were trying to squeeze more and more performance out of the boat. And the biggest performance that you could get out of the boat was to actually go the right way. Um, you know, you could, you could do every little thing under the sun in terms of analysing your tax and, and doing straight line, straight lining and, and trimming sails and cutting, recutting sails and, and, you know, getting a better boat and whatever, whatever. But if you went the right way, you didn't increase the performance of the boat by you know, less than 1%. You could increase it by 5% or, or better um, just by being in phase with the breeze. And so certainly it was, it, was, it was definitely understood, but no one could really forecast the weather that well. And um, Yeah, I developed some statistical techniques which were very powerful in different venues, but the only time you can ever do that sort of stuff is when you work for an America's Cup team because you've got to be at the venue for several years, you've got to collect a lot of data, you've got to do a lot of analysis, you've got to understand what you're doing anyway. Um, and relate it to the uh, to the the way and the, what's driving the wind and what's making the wind do what it does on the water, and then put it all together. And um, yeah, I I was probably I, I definitely say that I was the pioneer meteorologist that did that sort of thing. Um, I can remember with the I was with um, after the Perth series I, I was in the ninety uh, two campaign when uh, I was with El Moro de Venezia, the Italian team, because I was going to be again with Bondi, but he, he went uh, belly up with the uh, 87 crash or the subsequent outcome of the 87 stock market crash. And um, I worked with the Italian team, which subsequently beat uh, Team New Zealand in the uh, Louis Vuitton final in San Diego. And then we went on to build to go against um, America cubed and uh, we lost 5-2, I think it was. Um, but in the uh, in the Louis Vuitton final against Team New Zealand was the first time I really started to get a little bit more um, firepower, if you like, in terms of what I could do. And one of the things that I did was instead of just me being on the water on my chase boat somewhere well up towards the top mark, we were sailing a few of the races in very light winds, uh, really light winds, where spatially you went off the line looking for pressure, not for shift as much, because it was usually shift that people were talking about, but it was pressure in those light airs off San Diego on some of the days. And um, I had two, ch I set up two chase boats left and right, not that far just off the line, so that we could. Uh, analyze which side of the course so that when they went 
when they went off the start, then you were you were sailing for the pressure, not the not the direction. So yeah, th- there's those sort of things were uh, milestones, I think. And there became a uh, became an arms race then, going through the uh, the 90s in terms of the weather teams. So every team, the bigger teams with with money, got bigger and bigger weather teams, and uh, it culminated in um, 2000, where um, or maybe even. 2003, no, 2007, I had a weather team of about six people. Um, we had four boats, five boats, and then we uh, it was just getting stupid. So then the rules came back that there was a limited number of um, support boats and, you know, you, didn't, you couldn't just put your boat anywhere on the course and collect the data and do the in real-time analysis. And that that was, I think that's better for the sport anyway. But yeah, yeah. What was that arms race period like? What was that environment like to work in? And, and I guess what was the pressure like on you to get it right each day? Well, the pressure's right no matter what it is. I mean, the pressure's right, right up. It's always the same in America's cups. There's, you know, you've got a a one hundred million or a three hundred million dollar campaign. And particularly, my, my role has changed. We'll talk about that sometime about the... Uh, my role has changed substantially now that we're in fast boats. I don't forecast the same sort of thing in the fast boats as I did in the slow boats. In the slow boats, um, it was absolutely fundamentally important to get the right configuration at the start, wide right, tight, lured, whatever, how you wanted to play the course, where you wanted to get that shift or pressure. How did, where did you want to be on the course when you were a third and halfway up the course? And that was that was my call. And my call either by myself in the early days or with a team around you. Um, and the team, I had a bunch of really good guys, you know, young engineers, good, good, really good young guys and older guys. Um, I had Mike Quilter, experienced navigator, Grant Beck, um, and then... Uh, some younger guys as well and good guys uh, we just mathematically uh, we des- we developed tools you know we, we we were we forecasted very well so that but i was the one that still made the call so the pressure was on me um if uh, if we got it wrong yeah did you enjoy that sort of pressure i don't enjoy it as much now as i no, I don't think I ever enjoyed it. You don't enjoy that sort of thing. If you get it wrong, you know, um, you can be a mug, but uh, you'd put up with it. Yep. Did it take you a while, to, I guess, to learn to brush it off when when you didn't the forecast may, maybe didn't materialise? Yes, but I mean, as you get older and older, and and you've got good tools, you don't you try not you know there's degrees of wrongness, <laughs> and yeah. You try not to be blatantly wrong. Um, you try and have it perfect each time. But um, yeah, it's um, it's it's certainly uh, you can just you can get it you can get it wrong, but maybe just a, a smidgen wrong, or uh, not not necessarily. You know, I want you to hit the right hand ley line, and you should have hit the left hand ley line. Um, that's wrong. <laughs> um, so yeah, you you'd get it. You get parts of it wrong. You can never be perfectly right. That's the first thing, never. And after as many years as I've been doing it now, I know my accuracy 
it wouldn't matter if I could get the next 10, 20, 30 forecasts wrong and it wouldn't change my percentage call over the last 50 years. Um, so therefore I've been doing it too long and I should get out. <laughs> do you have, do you know, can you share what that accuracy level is? I haven't got a clue, but it's. But I know it's reasonable. I know it's pretty good. There's so many ways to measure the accuracy. You can't. You can't just say it. But I mean, I, I get a lot more right in the right side, in the correct side of things, than the wrong side of things. So it it must be somewhere up in the 80s, or I don't know if it's in the 90s or not. Depends what people want out of a forecast. Well, it's probably why you've done what is it? Ten America's Cups, nine Olympics, and countless other big campaigns so you you, you know you've got that uh, pedigree of getting things right uh, so is that um why you went across to team new zealand in 2003 because uh, i read somewhere that you had offer f- offers from about six teams for that campaign but went with team new zealand even though they were probably not one of the higher paying ones that's correct um i went i i've Every team I've joined, I've joined because I want to work with the people, not the money. And I've, and that's that's always been the best. And after every campaign, the the team has always asked me back for the next one. I've never been sacked. They've always asked me back. The only reason I haven't gone back to teams is because they've gone belly up, not me. So I'm told you played a, a really crucial role in the 2017 Bermuda campaign, and that's possibly where you were talking about how things have changed. Um, and, and included in that is the design stage, and that you know most teams sort of probably got it wrong designing boats for conditions that didn't materialise. So, what kind of assistance did you offer there? Oh, I, yeah, I, I, that's probably a bit unfair on all the other teams. I think, I think. Yeah, the uh, the broad spectrum of winds in Bermuda were pretty um, pretty much um, understood. Um, it's just that the actual races we had we had a number of races where the breeze was pretty much on the soft side. You know, it was only nine knots between eight and eleven knots, eight and ten knots, and even eight and nine knots. And I think, yeah, I mean, well, certainly in the design stage, I suppose that's fair enough to say that probably the uh, the Americans probably designed their boat for slightly heavier conditions, probably slightly heavier, but they could have motored their boat slightly more in the lighter side than, than what we did. But, yeah, the uh, the forecast change, as I say in the slow boats, you know, uh, it was my call to the back of the boat. Now, the back of the it's back of the boat still makes the call, not me, so they could say, oh, Klaus hasn't got a clue what he's talking about and um, we'll, we'll go this way. But but my input was very very large. Um, in these boats, they're so bloody fast. They're not they're not hanging around on one tiny little wind shift that the slow boats were using. Um, and my role changed dramatically. Where I was um, particularly, I was forecasting six hours ahead, looking at at seven o'clock in the morning when they mowed the boat and design, physically pick all the things they were going to use on the boat, the, the tips, the, the rudders, the elevators, um, the actual size of the foil. Um, that was all done at 7 o'clock in the morning and some of those things were not just bolted on but were um, bogged in and smoothed and autoclaved. 
So you couldn't go back at half past seven and say, well, actually, I think now at three o'clock it's going to be another three knots or two knots more because it was too late. You'd made the call. So six hours I'd be sweating every day watching to see uh, see how it was going. You know, was I on track? So I must have been on track most of the time because we won. I'm told you're also a workaholic. So what, what's a typical day, you know, in that 2017 campaign? You're, you're talking about forecasting at 7 a.m. So what time are you starting to be able to deliver that and what time are you finishing up? I used to start. Well, I don't actually even enjoy starting early in the morning. Not that early, but I, and I've done it all my life nearly. Um, right back from radio days, back in the in the mid seventies, I used to have to have the forecast in at quarter to five in the morning, which means you started at half past three. Um, for the Bermuda in those days, I probably used to start at about five, and I'd have a first forecast done at six. Then I'd get on the motor scooter and go into the base, and then do an an update forecast at around seven. And that was the one that was um, was used. So we came to the America's Cup this year, and you're again involved with um, Team New Zealand. Um, I read somewhere that you preferred sitting on a hill overlooking the race courses rather than going on the water. Why was that? Um, well, in the past, you're on the water because you were in the slow boats. That was that was paramount because you were you were trying to get that wind shift of what's going to happen in the first few minutes of the run race and remember in a slow boat in the first few minutes it hasn't gone very far um but in the fast boats in the first few minutes they're probably halfway up the damn course or <laughs> whatever so you're looking at the bigger picture in in that extent you're looking at the at the big picture you know what's going to happen and the, the, the whole race is only going to take 35 minutes or 30 minutes or something um so you're doing a, a forecast for that whole race over the over the whole race area and it's it, it actually is quite good then to get that that view that all-round view um in bermuda i had a really nice little hill where i could motor scooter down to but up until then i'd always been on the water in my own boat doing calling the shots but after well no it actually started in san francisco because in san fran the same thing um i uh, i used to go around in the afternoon uh, and look down on the course. So, yeah, um, it started with the fast boat there. Looking at the clouds as well too, huh? Oh, especially in San Fran. Oh, but in Bermuda too, there was a famous cloud street there. There were several cloud streets that were very important in the way the breeze reacted on the water. Yep. So what sort of information would you be relaying to the team and, and how close would it be to, say, the start of a race? Well, a little bit, a little bit later... Uh, sorry, a little bit earlier in the information for the big boats again because I uh, in San Fran I was talking to the back of the boat but in Bermuda and in New Zealand, in Auckland, in the last campaign, I was talking to Ray Davies who was assistant coach and coach um, on the chase boat. So he would then, they would be rafted up with the uh, with the yacht, and they'd be talking to Pete and Blair and Glenn and whatever on the boat. Um, and but then that boat would then break away 
um, for several minutes before they then go into the into the uh, across the line into the uh, start area. So a little bit uh, the information was a little bit uh, earlier in time to Ray to the back of the boat to do their thing, and then before they started, compared to the slower boats where I was talking to the back of the boat right up until physically and sometimes only 15 seconds before they entered. Um, but they had a five-minute um, dial-up session, dueling session in the box before the, they crossed the line. But in the fast boats, they only have uh, a couple of minutes. That's, that's different. Oh, totally different game. Um, well, sort of different. Different boats, that's for sure. So, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly uh, changed. How difficult is Auckland as a place to forecast? I like it actually. Um, it's 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 reasonably easily understood, I think. Um, and um, depending where you are, there's there's a lot of places. I mean, there's a lot of variation in Auckland because you know you can be sailing, and especially where we sailed with the cup in the harbour. There, uh, you've got Rangi Island, which is the wind can split around there around North Head and uh, and up into the harbour. Um, sailing out into the what I call the America's Cup Bay, which is off the East Coast Bays there. That bay doesn't have a name, um, and yet it's bounded by three sides by land, so it should have a name. The next bay is called Kowow Bay, but that bay is called nothing. It's just called the Gulf, but it's not really, it's not what I call the Gulf. I call the Gulf outside, Tiri and um, Rangi and um, Wahiki. Anyway, um, yeah, out in the centre there where the previous America's Cups were held, um, there's there's a lot of variation across there too, which we really got to understand during the, the uh, 2000 and 2003 campaigns, uh, understood them quite well. But, yeah, that Auckland, I mean, the first, the first thing you've got to get around your head is that the, the primary sea breeze in Auckland is the West Coast sea breeze, even though it's on the East Coast. You know, it comes across from from the west coast across the airport and around the back of the city and comes in as a southwesterly or a south southwesterly or even a southerly. So that's the uh, that's the dominant sea breeze, but it doesn't arrive in the harbour until sometimes any time between early afternoon and very, very late afternoon or early evening, but that's the strongest sea breeze. The east coast sea breeze is a, is a weak sea breeze and it, um, it can... It can uh, develop on on certain days, but on many of the days, the West Coast sea breeze is the dominant breeze. I think you've uh, said in the last couple of America's Cups that you know that was always going to be your last. Will we see you back for the next one? Tell me where it's going to be. <laughs> A million or <laughs> multiple million dollar question, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I <clears throat> I'm not sure that I. Uh, I'm getting old, um, so I I don't know, probably less than 50% chance that I'd be involved. Um, and if it goes offshore into another hemisphere, I'm not that inclined to want to go and spend a lot of time in another hemisphere. I've done that all my life, time to, uh, to do other things. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I guess, about the lifestyle of, of, of meteorologists like yourself. You know, did it mean that you needed to travel to where the events were or is there a lot of forecasting that you can do from home? 
you can do more and more from home these days because because of the uh, the speed of the internet and the amount of information available on the internet and uh, you know different things that you can use with uh, real-time data and webcams and all sorts of stuff but for really good accurate forecasting over a race area you really got to be there really um it does make the difference but you know it depends how well you know i could i reckon i could do 95 percent of my forecast if i if it was in auckland uh from somewhere else 95 percent different days some days you could do 100 percent, and other days you might only be able to do 70 percent. but um if it's an area that you don't know as well then that's hard um and if you haven't done the homework on the place and and you know in, in terms of that i've spent when the cup was in valentia it was uh, it was there for four years from 2003 through till the cup in 2007 the team only came up for two summers for a couple of months, a bit longer in the last one when the cup was on, but they weren't up there that long. But I spent four summers there, long summers. I was there for six, seven months a year for four years. And then I was in New Zealand for three months every summer when we were training there. So I was actually only home south of Sydney for two months of the year for four years. That's a big commitment, isn't it? You can see why uh, you know, it's a big decision to make uh, depending on where the, the, the location of the next one is. Yeah, well, I mean, as I say, you've done, I've been, I mean, where the cup has been, which is uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and then Perth, and then San Diego, and then Auckland, and then Valencia, and then San Francisco and then Bermuda and then back to Auckland. I know those areas very well. Um, and some are easier than others. But um, if it goes to a new place, you, you, you've got to do the homework. You can't just walk in and think that you know everything because you don't. Well, that's the, um, the America's Cup and the um, Olympics that obviously you've sort of made a household name in, but you've been heavily involved in other aspects of sailing and you sort of touched on that right at the start of, of today's chat, you know, from round the world races to TP52s, um, even just to cruises and, and people delivering boats looking to find a weather window sort of for an ocean passage. Um, and, and researching yeah, actually, for this podcast, I found a piece from, I think it was 2016. And on top of your involvement in all of these America's Cups and Olympics, you'd also helped something like 20 round-the-world campaigns, 35 Sydney to Hobart races, more than 500 Tasman crossing. Um, you know, that tally must be considerably higher now. Do you keep a tally of all the campaigns or forecasts um, that you've been involved in? No. Only the America's Cups. Um, well, I know how many Admiral's Cups I've done. I don't even know exactly how many Hobarts I did because the uh, the Hobarts, the first few I was only involved in a little bit, not not majorly, but I've done over 40 Hobarts. Um, and the Admiral's Cups doesn't exist anymore. The Fastnet races, the old Cape Town Rio races, the uh, Bermuda race, um, and then 
Yachting New Zealand, I do all the forecasting, which I get you down sometimes, but uh, wherever the Olympic sailors are sailing, Barcelona at the moment, I provide a forecast for the, so if the 470s are in um, Cascais in Portugal and the the Finns happen to be, if they're still going there, but they might be in uh, in Weymouth in England and someone else might be, uh, you know, in uh, in somewhere in Germany or in France or whatever, La, La Hies or, you know, Hies or anywhere, La Ciota, Marseille. So I've forecast an amazing number of places. Now, I know most of them. I've been to most of them and forecast, but there are a few places that I just only forecast without being there. But it's just just a, a, an unbelievable number of places that you that you get. Uh, my local knowledge is, is extraordinary. But, um, yeah, when I take my last breath, it'll go with me. Is there much of a difference in the information that you're, say, providing to a tp52 team or you know even a sydney hobart team compared to even just a a a delivery who's trying to get across the tasman oh yeah yeah i mean you know the 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 smaller the area you're forecasting the the higher the degree of accuracy that you want so if you you know if you're forecasting for the 470s or whatever in in last in cascade in portugal you know, you're you're forecasting for a small area, just like an America's Cup course, just off Cascade, and you've got to understand the way in which the breeze there, the sea breeze, the way it develops, um, the sort of breeze when it comes down the west coast of the Portuguese coast, and how it wraps the uh, the big uh, uh, headland there, and and whether they're going to be in the pressure and where that where they'd be. So there's there's that side of things versus just the general forecast of of, a, of an ocean passage. I mean, I, in the old days, I'd, I had some fantastic winds in the uh, what was then the Whitbread and now the Volvo race and now the Ocean race or whatever it is, um, where I, I got the boat way in front by by being a meteorologist, <laughs> having good meteorological knowledge. Um, but the models now are so good that everyone's going to do that now. You know, everyone knows pretty much what to do. And the worst thing they do in those races, I think it's worse, is that they tell everyone where everyone else is. To me, a good race is when they they should lock them up for 10 days for a start and then they don't have any local knowledge. And... <laughs> So there's no weather information, but particularly when they, um, you know, when they when they get going at uh, at sea, it would be really good not to know where the other boat is, um, so that you're sailing you're sailing your race, you know, from point A to point B, and uh, and not know where, where the other boats because what what that tends to do is to bring all the boats into like a swarm of bees. They're all with each other and they. It's just they're just sailing with each other the whole time for ten days, twenty days, or whatever, however long the leg is, and that um, it's great for the uh, for the um, excitement of the of the race, you know, because oh, it's a twenty day race and someone only won by three minutes. But if you didn't tell everyone where everyone else was, the only way you could do that would be like the clipper ships back in the um, 
in the uh, in the century before last, where um, you know the Cuddy Sark sailed against the Thermopylae, and um, they had to match race each other all the way from from China to uh, to England. Uh, and if you went out of sight, then you lost him. So um, yeah, and then you'd see they wouldn't be they wouldn't be finishing within three minutes of each other. They'd be finishing within ten days of each other. <laughs> So that would be much more exciting. They they get they those ocean races they get too much weather information and they get too much information about the other boats. But saying all that, that's um, that's why um, yeah, and it's a general forecast. You're trying to forecast what the cruise is going to be doing in on day eight. Um, you know, in the middle of the Pacific or Indian Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. Um, and that's where the computer models have been have had their greatest improvement in accuracy. So therefore, if you've got access to the computer models, then um, you know you're reliant on them because you go back forty years, you had trouble doing the day the day two, not day eight. Yeah, things have changed. Sounds to me like you've got the idea for uh, another race and um, maybe oh, it's yeah. something. Sure. Too right, I have. <laughs> now you mentioned um, earlier on that you're working in Formula One with Ferrari. You know, tell me about that. When did that start, and and how did you become involved? I got involved because Ferrari stuffed up one of their races in 2007 with uh, where they didn't forecast the rain, and um, the uh, the boss of then Ferrari, which was just after Jean Todd left, and it was um, uh, Stefano Domicelli. He was friends with um, uh, Francesco De Angelis and uh, with the Italian great Italian skipper, who I knew very well. And he said, "We uh, I think we need a meteorologist." And Francesco said, "Oh, you need clouds." Um, so that's that's where it started. Is it? Is it quite different work to what you're doing with with the sailing? Is it mostly about rain as opposed to wind? It's about all sorts of things that you would never even thought about. Um, these guys have got more money and they know more about the car than anyone knows about a sailboat. Um, so there's all sorts of things that come in. I have to forecast the wind, speed and direction accurately. I have to forecast the temperature accurately, the track temperature. That's the temperature of the of the ash field or the cement. And I have to forecast the rain and when it's going to occur. And some of that's in real time and some of that's um, a forecast of several hours ahead. And the wind speed and direction, I have to forecast. They build the motor after two practice sessions on Friday. They have to build the car on Friday night and then you can't touch the motor. After that, oh, you get a, a grid penalty. You get put back in the grid in the starting for the race. So on Friday night, I have to forecast the wind speed and direction down the straight on Sunday afternoon. Why? Because that determines the seventh gear ratio on the gearbox. So has this meant that you've had to go to all of the venues to check out the, the local conditions like you've done a lot of the sailing venues? No. No, you, you're forecasting with the computer models more than anything. But uh, no, I, I I went on the track for a year and nearly two years with them. Um, I know nothing about car racing, really. 
but I've, I've after from then till now, how long is that? That's um, about 15 years nearly. Um, I, 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 I do know what they need now. <laughs> um, and you're, um, yeah, you're forecasting. Um, it, there are some, probably about two or three races a year where I think I'd really like to be at the track, but the rest of them I'm very thankful that I'm not at the track and having to travel and uh, put up with the noise of that motor. So on a, a race day scenario, are you looking in front of all your computers and getting all the weather information and, and communicating with the team as they're racing? Yep. I uh, On a typical day, which was last night, except it wasn't raining last night, um, it was in Mexico, I do a forecast for them at between 8 and 9 in the morning. That's the culmination of I do a forecast tonight for next weekend, which is in Brazil. And that over the three days for the three for the five session times, I do a forecast from to, from Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you hopefully get more accurate as you get closer. But I do a forecast then. I do an update forecast. Well, if it's in a session time, um, then I I'm well. I mean, uh, say take on a Friday. There's a practice session at say about eleven o'clock. Um, so I've done a forecast at nine. Then I'm online real time to the engineers on the pit wall um, and I'm typing to them in real time any updates, um, where there are shower clouds, what time they're expected, uh, track temperature, what's expected to do over the next hour, um, air temperature the same. They're, depends what they're vulnerable. They always have seem to have some vulnerability somewhere and they're on your back about something but um yeah that's uh so then at the end of that session I, I update the forecast and then there's another session a couple of hours later do the same thing and then the forecast for the next day and then the next day it'd be practice three then qualifying same real time all the time all the way through the event and then on sunday the race same thing sound like an expert rattling off all the, the, the entire schedule. Is there, are there some things from Formula One that you've sort of taken across to America's Cup, you know, some of the, the way that they approach things that you've potentially said to an America's Cup team, have you thought about doing it this way? Not really. Um, I mean, that's, that's particularly on the design side. I mean, some of the uh, F1 teams have joined with some of the America's Cup teams for this next event wherever it's going to be, and um, <laughs> you get very good at listening to um, to meetings, um, whether they're in Italian or English, um, just understanding the, uh, it's all about the, um, the, the human dynamics, isn't it? You know, there's always someone that likes to dominate in the meeting and some people like talking and others like just being quiet, and some people say, a few things, but they're very relevant, and a lot of people talk a lot of rubbish. I shouldn't say rubbish, but you know what I mean. And um, it's amazing listening to a an F1 design meeting and listening to an America's Cup analysis after a after a race. And apart from changing the word boat to yacht, it'd be no difference. That's interesting. Just, and, um, and, and, and a bit of finger pointing as well, of course. <laughs> of course, everyone likes a bit of finger pointing. Yeah. 
Um, just just to sort of finish off, I guess you know, there's always a lot of weather information online these days. You know, what advice would you give to some sailors out there, sort of trying to filter out the good information from the bad? Uh, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's it's not just the information; it's what you do with it, and that's where most sailors come unstuck. Because sailors, good sailors, and I've worked with all the good sailors around the world. Um, Good sailors have an inherent understanding of, of wind just because they've done a lot of sailing and they understand the nature of the breeze. But that's often, um, their knowledge is often uh, founded on a poor theory or understanding of what's actually going on. So unless the forecast they get is perfect, they may misinterpret what the forecast is saying or what the way in which they interpret it. So knowledge is is the key in anything, and particularly you know, the, the F1 guys have no, no, no idea. You certainly understand that sailors have a better understanding of the weather than, than car racers. Um, but, yeah, to understand the, uh, the complexity and the way in which the breeze, what, what's actually occurring is, is, is very important. But... Uh, using the forecast um, and where to get it. Look, there's, I always say there's more weather on the, on the internet than there is pornography. Um, so there's a lot of it. And there are so many models of, that you can use. And In fact, there's so many models that you can always pick one in hindsight that was correct, but you've got to know beforehand which one was going to be right. Um, so it's it's a difficult thing, and the, you've you've got to you've just got to um, understand which sort of model is is best for what you're trying to do, uh, at, whether it's a, a small one hour yacht race or whether it's a passage race or whether it's a uh, just a passage or whatever, and uh, which which model has statistically has the best results. Um, and where it's likely to fail. And, and there's no hard and fast answer. I mean, I've got a lot of experience in meteorology, but, you, you know, you can still, you still make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And there's, there's just no simple answer except that you get what's operationally often the best, the model that fails the least, and use that. And therefore, it'll, it'll do you good statistically more often than it does your harm i guess a lot of that is experience too isn't it and understanding what's happened previously oh totally absolutely absolutely so what plans for clouds batham in the future well i don't know i'm def definitely start to cut back on things and uh do less and less we'll see what happens with the cup um and with the latest ocean race and other races. I'm doing the F1 again next year. Ferrari's had a couple of lean years. They have a new car. There's a new design, new motor, new car next year. They normally ask me about an hour before the first race, oh, are you coming again this year? But um, they've asked me already, which means that they're planning, hopefully, to uh, have a better year next year. Um, so I'm going to do that again next year, but after that, I don't know. I'll see me retire or retire. 
maybe a bit more time spent on restoring those old engines and planting the trees and getting into the opera, I'm told. Yeah, I do a lot of, uh, I've planted over 100,000 trees in my life. So uh, actually me on the knees, done some good there. Um, yep, I've just paid a fortune to get an old boat restored and uh, got to get out on it. Yep, do a few things. Oh, sounds good. Well, we thank you very much for um, for joining us today. Uh, just before you go, I've got to get uh, the story of your worst wipeout ever. Um, there's got to be one in there. So what's, what's your story? I always used to relate this one when I was teaching MET um, to sailors years ago, but it was when I was doing the weather on the radio, and this is before computer models. And <clears throat> forecasting for Sydney, and I was on the number one radio station talking to the number one disc guy, and I was doing the forecasting all day. And at seven o'clock in the morning on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was going to be a beautiful day. Eleven o'clock in the morning, I said, "Well, there's going to be a, some cloud on on Saturday morning, but then it's going to be a good weekend." And at three o'clock in the afternoon, I said, "Well, actually." There's going to be some showers on Saturday morning, but then there'll just be a cloudy afternoon and then it'll be a beautiful Sunday. And by six o'clock, the, uh, I can't remember, was it the, I think it was the, um, the trots were already cancelled because there'd been an inch of rain on Friday night and it stopped raining on Sunday afternoon. Now, now that's, that's interesting because that sort of thing can't happen now because of the, you, the computer models now, that sort of development, used to be the bugbear of, of forecasters. Cold pool aloft, which would come up from the Southern Ocean and interact in a funny way, and they'd develop very quickly and they'd put mud on your face every time. And the computer models, I see the computer models now showing that that's going to happen eight and ten days ahead. And in those days, you couldn't forecast at 12 hours ahead. That's how much things have changed. Of course, there's that famous uh, story about Michael Fish, wasn't there? The BBC weather forecaster yep. and, the, and the hurricane that uh, yep, he was told exactly. was coming and, and discredited. And sure enough, yep. it was quite devastating. Well, he, that was in the early days of computer forecasting. And the computer model didn't have it because they didn't pick up the latest observations. And that was the same in the... Uh, in the Fastnet race, if you've got one minute, mm -hmm. in the Fastnet disaster in 1979 when computer forecasting was just in its infancy and particularly uh, showing its legs in the British Met Office, the UK Met Office, and they used to have a person called the, the, uh, the intervention officer. And what that would do is the computer would take all the information in which was not a lot of satellite data in those days, which is now in the billions of pieces of information, but just the ship observations and that. And there were two ships that came up um, southwest of Fastnet Rock with two very different conditions. And so it flagged it, and the intervention officer looked at these two ships, and one had a, a northeasterly of 15 knots and the other one had a southwesterly of 15. 45 or 50 knots and this this can't be right they're so close to each other you can't have that um so he looked up the british admiralty and the one with 15 knots was um 
a, uh, a, a UK registered vessel skippered by uh, Mr. Captain Thompson Brown Smith, <laughs> a very reliable man. And uh, the other one was a Liberian oil tanker, you know. So we'll discard the Liberian oil tanker. And out it went from the observations. And that was a, a very tight, low-pressure system developing right there and then. They missed it. And the computer ran the model and didn't have the vital information. That wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen these days either. It shows you the value of, of forecasting, is it, and the importance of it, and particularly in, in you know, in maritime adventures so uh, yeah it's probably a, a timely reminder of just um what a crucial role someone like you plays yeah but i mean once again i mean the the world's so much smaller place now than in 1979 you know there's so many satellites there's so much data from from the satellites that and there's so much more um information in terms of the uh, the computer models and the uh, yeah it's just that sort of thing just doesn't it can still happen but not on that degree um you know you still miss bits and pieces and but it's not not to the same thing and tropical cyclones hurricanes or typhoons don't develop at sea without anyone knowing but they did in the old days but everyone knows everything now because the world is so you know it's not just social media there's satellite media (laughs) we're all being watched including the weather indeed Hey, well, thanks again for your time. It's been a really fascinating look at uh, another side of uh, of the sport and, and just the role that I guess you've played and a number of the successes of campaigns, both with New Zealand teams and um, uh, international teams. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Very nice to chat. Well, I hope you have a better understanding of weather forecasting and the impact it can have on sailors and events. If you're new to Broadreach Radio, don't forget to have a look back through the catalogue of previous episodes. It would also be much appreciated if you could give us a follow and share your favourites on social media, which is the best way for the podcast to grow. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.